Welcome to Cooper Talk, presented by Walk My Mind. Bring your body, bring your mind. This is Walk My Mind, a holistic approach to wellness that connects the dots of physical, mental, and emotional health. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest, and uh, we, we have a great guest today. It's funny, I contacted this gentleman a while ago, and I contacted him again yesterday, and no lie, he got back to me, and I was wearing a Sullivan & Son t-shirt that I got from my friend who did warm-up for the show, and my guest is Dan Loria. How you doing, Dan? Hi, Steve. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, it was funny. I was wearing that shirt yesterday, the uh, the, the Sullivan and Son shirt, and it was just a coincidence that you got back to me. <laughs> yeah, uh, Steve Byrne, uh, the creator and uh, the son of Sullivan and Son, he was at my house this weekend with Jody Long. We had a little barbecue. That's awesome, because I, so, Gar- I know Gary Cannon, yeah. who did the warm-up. Oh, Gary. One, one funny guy. Yeah. So, I want to talk to you about your career. Now, I, I think as a kid, you were pretty much an athlete, right? As a kid, when did you start getting interested in acting? Because you've had such a prolific career, and you've been on TV, Broadway. Well, well, well my, my aunt uh, Adele lived with us for a while when I was a kid, and she was an old movie buff. And I'd come home from football practice, and she'd say, go to bed. And I'd go to bed early, and she'd wake me up at 2 o'clock in the morning and go, James Cagney. And we'd watch the Late Late Show. So I was always kind of interested. And then when I went to college, I went to Southern Connecticut, I was telling a joke before football practice and spring ball. And a little old lady walked up and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Would you like to be in a play? And I said, you know, I always wanted to try that. She said, I know. And I said, how would you know? And she said, because I'm the greatest acting teacher in the world. (laughs) And it was Constance Welsh who uh, started the Yale Dramat. And uh, I went over and she put me in a student production. And then she put me in her production of The Tempest. And pretty much that's how, after that, I figured, well... You know, this beat's working, so I went into Marine Corps after that, and I figured if Nam didn't kill me, acting wouldn't, and uh, I've been doing it ever since. Now, now, was it easy? Did you stop playing football when you started acting, or did, were you, did you still do both? No, no, I did both, and uh, when I came out of the service, I even coached at my old high school on Long Island, until uh, I got a grant to go to University of Connecticut for playwriting. My MFA is in playwriting. Now, when did you start writing? Did you, were you writing when you were over in, in you know, in, in college? Or when did, when did this whole, when did you start writing and go uh, in that direction? I, I actually started writing when I was in the Marine Corps. Uh, Miss Welsh would send me plays, and I wrote a couple, and I sent her one, and she sent it to Dr. Cecil Hickle of uh, University of Connecticut, and he got me a grant to go there for playwriting when I came out of the service. So, so you're up there, you're doing the playwriting, and now when do you, you know you want to do this, but what's your what's your plan to get this career started? Uh, you know, I, I had met Charles Durning when I was in uniform, and he said if I ever came to New York to get in touch with him, and I got him a hold of the play I wrote, and he liked it. So he helped me. Uh, he did some backers auditions, and we raised the money to go off Broadway. 
and Charlie and I were best friends for uh, 40 years. Uh, matter of fact, your, your listeners may not know this, but Charles Durning and Jack Klugman, who were my mentors, they both died four years ago on Christmas Eve, four hours apart. And I gave the eulogy at both their uh, both their uh, funerals. How does that make you feel? I mean, giving a eulogy at the, the two legends, I mean, that must, you know, make you felt, you know, I mean, you missed your friends. But that must make you felt very important for the fact that, you know, they must have thought so much of you, too. Well, yeah, you know, Charlie was like my dad in the last 10 years of Jack's life. You know, I, he put his arm around me once and said, now that Tony's gone, you're my best friend. And uh, that made me feel really you know, it was a real special moment. Matter of fact, at the end, he would only allow Gary Marshall and I to go visit him. And we'd go every Thursday and watch an old movie, and I'd listen to the two of them tell tales about old Hollywood and old television. And uh, matter of fact, Jack wrote a note. He knew we would do a memorial for him. And he wrote something for Gary to say about me. And, uh, and he wrote something for me to say about Gary. But in uh, what he wrote for Gary, Jack said, and if any of you out there are doing a play that needs a dead body, don't tell Lordy at the past, it'll pick me up. <laughs> so, so well, now you said you with during you went down off, uh, off Broadway, you started to play, and now how did you get back? Did, now, what happened after that? Did you... Did you think about TV and film, or were you just concentrating on the stage? Well, you know, it, we, we did everything. You did a play hoping you would get some recognition and um, get a job. I, I did a play called Vesper's Eve. My roommate at the time was Eddie O'Neill. And uh, Eddie was on Broadway in a bomb, and I was off Broadway making no money in a hit. So Eddie actually paid the rent. So I didn't have to quit the play. And then shortly after, because of that play, I got a job on uh, One Life to Live where I met Judith Light. And, uh, you know, it all it's all interwoven. When we were doing Lombardi and Tommy Cale asked me for a couple of names to play Marie Lombardi, literally the first name I put on the paper was Judith Light. So all, all we all intermingled back then, and we all worked together. Well, it must have been great. It must have been What's that? I'm sorry. No, I was going to say, it must have been great. It must have been a great community because it was different now than now. You know, back then it was like, it was the personal contact. Now so much stuff is done through, you know, online, or if you take an acting class, you can take it over Skype. Back then, it right. must have really got a yeah. close-knit, because you guys are all in the trenches, and you know it's like, because like when I did stand-up comedy, we had to sit there, we had to tape our set, we had to mail it, and you had to deliver stuff, right. and now it's different, so you guys must have got some really close friendships, because you're all hustling together. Well, we, we were. I worked at a place called uh, Bar uh, with uh, Central. It was across from the uh, uh, History Museum on uh, Columbus. And uh, Eddie and uh, Bruno, Bruce Willis were the bartenders, and John Goodman was the doorman, and I washed dishes in the back. <laughs> wow. so. so, 
you start getting on Broadway. When do you start, after you do the soap opera, when do you start trying to transition into TV? And at, well, what, at what point do you try to come to L? Would you go to L.A.? Well, I came to L.A. in 86, and I got lucky, and I started working, and then in, uh, I got the audition for the Wonder Years, and of course that sets you up. But I, I, uh, I was lucky. I came... When I came out here, I was doing one guest spot after another, you know. Now, what kind of so, role? Uh, what kind of roles were you getting at those guest spots at that point in your career? Were you getting the father? Were you getting a judge? Were you getting a cop? What were you going out for? Because I see your list. You know, you were in Simon and Simon, Hardcastle McCormick, yeah. all these classic shows. You know, uh, all. What were you getting? What roles were you? Yeah. Getting? Well, they they knew I was this character actor from New York, so they were sending me up for everything. Sometimes I'd be the Irish terrorist, and then uh, once I went out for a forty-year-old Woody Allen type, and I got it. So, yeah, that was on Cagney and Lacey. I ended up doing six of them with Tyne and Sharon. They're, they're great people. What was it like doing TV back then? I mean, was it, it was very probably very different because then you had to, you know, now I know that you can shoot and you can stop and it's digital and you can reshoot. Did you basically have to nail, like, every take? I mean, were they long scenes or, or, or have, that, have the days changed well, now? Yes, Steve. I do a little lecture at colleges, and uh, what you're hitting on what was the biggest difference. We used to do uh, Cagney and Lacey in five days, six max. And we would do two or three minute scenes without a cut. So you had to be able to act. Now, uh, if you look at the movie Argo, which won Best Picture, the longest take is 27 seconds. You wonder why, you know, the director didn't get nominated for Best Director, even though it won Best Pictures. There is no director. You, you fill an editing machine. You know, and that was a, that really hurts these young actors because now they don't have to hire actors; they just hire types because they're cut on every line. It's but back then we didn't do that. You know, matter of fact, the biggest compliment you got back then is if you worked for a director and he always put you in the last scene of the day. I remember telling Charlie Durney, "Always hiring me, but I'm always the last one." seems like it does now with the wonder years how many auditions did you go through and was that just was that starting out as a pilot or was it going straight to series well i was uh i wouldn't have got the wonder years if it wasn't for joanna kearns the mom on growing pain um i did two growing pains episodes and neil marlins and carol black who created the wonder years were on that show and Neil Marlins was from Long Island. He was from the rival town of where I was from. And we were always kidding around. And when the auditions came for the Wonder Years, um, my agent couldn't get me in. And Joanna Kern said, why don't you call Neil Marlins? He likes you. He'll have you come in. And I said, ah, nah, I, I, that's so unprofessional. I can't do it. 
And Joanna Kearns called him, and she came out of her room and said, Neil just said, oh, my God, Dan's perfect. Have him come in tomorrow at 10 o'clock. Don't worry about, you know, the, the network or the casting director. And um, I went in, and after two more auditions, I went to network. So if it wasn't for Joanna Kearns, I wouldn't have gotten the show. Now, was that your first sh uh, shot at a pilot? Because you had, had so many guest starring roles. But that, was that your first shot at oh, a pilot? Oh, yeah. That was definitely my first shot. I remember I did a, a TV movie after we won Best Show for the Wonder Years with uh, Noble Whittingham. Remember him? He yeah. was the uh, general in Good Morning Vietnam. Yeah. And... and in City Slickers, he's the one who says, he's as happy as a boy as a pup with two Peters. You know? So uh, Noble used to make up those phrases. And Noble said to me, Dan, how many pilots did you do before the Wonder Years? And I said, Noble, that's my first one. And he said, you got to hit the first time out. He said, damn, I've been in more pilots than an Air Force proctologist, and I have never had a hit. So, you get on the Wonder Years, and that's so funny, because I, I hear so many people that have done so many pilots, and some of them never get picked up. You get this pilot. Now, now the first year, did you feel the magic? I mean, because everybody watched it, because we all could relate to it, no matter what age you were. If you were younger, you related to the younger characters. If you are older, you related to the other characters. Did you think, right. like, the first year that it would have that lasting power and just become a classic? Well, I I was one of the few that thought it was, wasn't going to make it because I thought it was too good. And uh, if it wasn't for Bob Iger, who was the president of ABC, they literally might have canceled it off because it was so far above the other shows. It was kind of making the network execs look at it and say, oh, that's what television's supposed to be. That's not what we do. You see, Neil, Neil and Carol had creative control, not the network. And they don't like it when the artists uh, control the art. What do you think made it so good? What were, what were the, uh, the different parts that made it so good? Why do you think it just resonated with people? Well, uh, first of all, it's the writing. And second of all, it was real. Uh, we weren't uh, the Hollywood image of what a family was supposed to be. You know, I mean, you see the father come home and the first thing he's grumpy and the first thing he needs is a drink. You know, the little boy growing up, you know, half our episodes ended with Fred's character saying, I wish I knew then what I know now. I wouldn't have done that. They didn't try to make him the kid who know everything. They just made it very real. So I, I, I mean, it was a great show to be a part of. No actor likes to hang his hat on one hook. But if you have to, um, the Wonder Years is a pretty good hook. How did that change your life? I mean, you probably started getting recognized everywhere. People probably, you know, I mean, if you were out having fun, they might, you know, you know, people thinking if they don't know really actors, they think, oh, well, he's a father. Why is he out having fun? How did it start changing your life? Because so many people watched the show. And did you ever feel that it really became overwhelming because people would recognize you a lot? Well, I, 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 I 
Well, you know, in our bit, like Jack Lemon said, start worrying when they stop recognizing you. Then you're in trouble, you know? So, uh, I, I, I don't know. It was, it changed. It, it, it still affects me today in a good way because when you call a young casting director and, uh, they don't know, they, you say Dan Loria, they don't know who you're talking about, but you say, oh, the dad from the Wonder Years, they usually go, oh, I remember him. Right. You know, they say my mother or my grandmother used to watch him, you know, but, you know, it's uh, it's still a, a hook that people can identify me with, which makes casting a little easier. Now, when you got Plato Father, and it's funny because I saw you were in a Dennis Bird movie, which a lot of people don't even know who Dennis Bird is, but he was the people, listeners, he was yeah. the jet who got paralyzed. Did you sit there? Yeah. Did you what kind of roles did you start getting after that? Because you were a father, and did you want to break away from the father role and start doing more risky roles? Oh, yeah, you know, but I always went back to the theater. I'm you know, all those guys I worked with in New York, we all said, Oh, we're no matter what happens, we're gonna. Last year, because I had a knee replacement, was the first year I didn't go back and do it. Of course, if I ever missed this year, Charlie Durney would have killed me. Yeah. So, uh, when you go back to the theater, you get a chance to do all the kind of roles. You know, uh, I got I got pigeonholed in television, but not on the stage. Now, stage yeah. is such a harder. I mean, it's performances every night. What were some of your roles that you did over on stage, like back then when you would go back to stage after, you know, during the Wonder Years and after the Wonder Years? What kind of, you know, what kind of productions were you looking for? Oh, I, I lucked out. I worked with some great writers, uh, Shem Bitterman, Willie Holtzman, uh, Bill Master Simone. He, he wrote a great play called A Stone Carver which uh, I loved doing. Uh, I, I mean, there were very few I didn't didn't enjoy doing. Uh, I worked with David Sain at George Street Playhouse. Uh, the first one I did there was Inspecting Carol. It was a, a Christmas play written by Dan Sullivan. It was such a big hit, we brought it back the year after, and we sold out every time. That was a great play. The first time I, I gave Jack, two, Jack Klugman, two plays, new plays, and one of them, The Value of Names, we did it at George Street Playhouse, and it did so well, we brought it to Gary Marshall's theater. And, uh, you know, they, they, that was written by Jeffrey Sweet. It was about the House on american Activities Committee, and Jack always said that was the best play he was ever on. Now... I, I, I lucked out. Played a lot of different characters, too, from, you know, immigrants to bad guys to... Uh, you know, politicians, you name it, and it was in there. What were you digging? What were what were the what were the roles that you really liked? Like, what were some meaty roles on stage that you said, "Man, this is great!" And you just had so much fun with it. It made you remember why you're an actor. Well, yeah, I, I don't know if I would say fun, but doing Lombardi for a year with uh, Tommy Kale directing, and I mean, he just directed that little play Hamilton, and. Uh, working with Judith Light. We were supposed to do 10 weeks, and we did 10 months. Now, how did Lombardi come up? Uh, 
how did you get that role? And then what kind of research did you have to do for it? Because you know how football fans are, and he's an icon. You know, you don't, you know, and you yeah. see documentaries about him. There's a great documentary on HBO about him. What did, how did that role come up? And then how did you personally, as an actor, transform yourself into Lombardi? Because it's something that people revere. Well, I, I again, I, I had uh, my name came up right away, <clears throat> and uh, the producer they could not give me the role because the theater owners wanted a movie star, and then they hired Tommy Cale to direct, and I had helped Tommy and uh, <clears throat> excuse me and uh, Lin Manuel Miranda before in the height. So uh, let me say that again so you can edit it in there. Uh, uh, I had, they didn't want me for Lombardi because I wasn't a movie star. Then they hired Tommy Kale, and I had helped Tommy Kale and Lin-Manuel Miranda before in the Heights. I knew those two before then. And once they hired Tommy, he insisted I have it. And again, the theater owners wouldn't accept me. So Tommy asked me to fly in on my own dime and do a reading for David Marinus, who wrote the book, the definitive book on Lombardi, When Pride Still Mattered, and Eric Simonson, who was working on the play. And after I read it, they said, this is Lombardi, you, you, we gotta have him. So Tommy came up with the idea of doing a reading for all the theater owners with the NFL there. And, uh, when the NFL execs saw me read it, they said they weren't going to get behind it unless I did it. So then, uh, old Ted Mann, won't circling the said, just hire the right actor. I've known Dan for 30 years. Put him in the play if you were doing it in the round. And then I was worried that, because Tommy Cal, he had never directed in the round, and I, he ran over to me right away, and he said, Dan, how do you feel about the round? And I said, Tommy, I love the round, but if you don't want to direct in the round, I understand. And he immediately said, no, I got a great idea already. That's how talented that young man is. And sure enough, we were supposed to do 10 weeks, and we were there 10 months. Now, as an actor, what are the challenges of being in the round? How do you sit there in time? I mean, how does that work from an actor's viewpoint? Well, for a director, you got to direct on a diagonal, on the bond, so people see as much of the faces as they can. And as an actor, I told the other actors, and they all kidded me, but it's true, the safest place on stage is in the other actor's eyes. Because if you look beyond them, you're going to see people waving fans and, you know, looking through their pocketbooks, opening up candy. But if you stay focused, you know, you'll be okay. And plus, you know, we had David Marinus there. We had a lot of the Packers come to rehearsal. Dave Robinson, whose character's in the play, he, uh, I tell you, they should have canceled the play and put him on stage. He's one of the funniest guys I've ever met. And uh, every Thursday night, we'd have a talk back with uh, one of the old Packers or somebody who knew uh, Coach Lombardi. And every one of them, Every one of them would start off with a story that was hilarious, but within 10 minutes, every one of them was in tears. Frank Gifford had to actually leave and then come back and speak again. 
he was so choked up talking about him. So, now, did very you, inspiring man. Now, did you think it would be a hit? Because, you know, people going to a play and watching football. What did you think when you were signing on? And why, why do you think it went longer than the original, you know, what is what you said, eight weeks and it ended up being ten months? Um, yeah. It, well, this is the odd thing about it. We, I thought it would be a hit because people who didn't come to the theater would come to see this play. And you got to remember, we had Judith Light. A lot of the women came to the play, went home, and said, it's the one play your husband will go see. And get that old fart off the couch. And you're going to like it, because Judith really... I mean, we'd hear every night in the audience, Judith would yell at me for being so obsessed, you know, yell at Coach Lombardi. And you'd hear the audience go, you're just like that, you're just like that. The women... <laughs> so... I thought it would be a hit, but the odd thing was the theater community didn't accept us. We had reviews that didn't even talk about the play. They talked about the blue-collar audience play as if it was a derogatory thing. And uh, that, that kind of hurt. Matter of fact, Tommy didn't get nominated for a Tony. I didn't. None of the cast members except Judith. Our set designer, our lighting designer, all these were all Tony Award winners already. None of, no one got uh, nominated except you. Now, the so uh, we felt bad about that. Now, for you, it must have been great because you played football and you actually had coached a little bit of football. Did you? Did you pull from that at all? Oh, of course, and uh, you know, plus the NFL was. So gracious to us. If I wanted to talk to Forrest Gregg or Bart Starr, five minutes later they were on the phone. You know, and I, I would always ask them, "What do you want to see that's not in the books?" I mean, I had David Marinus there, I, and, and we had all the research material, but I wanted to know what they saw that's not in the books. And more than half of them said his sense of humor. He had a great laugh. You know, so we put in a couple of real outburst laughs, you know. Now, you also, did you get did you get any mail from Green Bay Packer fans? And did people dig your, did uh, you get any good stuff where people said, man, you are him, and that must make you feel great, because, you know, Packers, you know, I'm a, I'm a Philadelphia Eagles fan, and we like the Packers fans, because they're they're <laughs> diehard. I mean, when you see guys with no shirts on in two-degree weather, you're a little bit, you got to be a little crazy. What were some of the, what was some of the in, input you got from Packers fans? Oh, well, they, you know, thanks for bringing the coach back. And uh, when the show was over, we actually went to Green Bay and did four performances, uh, you know, behind music stands. And then I went to their, uh, uh, you know, the people of Green Bay still own that town. So they're actually shareholders. And they had 30,000 shareholders. And I went out uh, as Lombardi and did a speech to them. And, uh, you know. Those are things you never forget. Let's put it this way. I didn't have to buy one beer when I was in Green Bay. That's, that's a good deal. Now, after yeah. after after uh, Lombardi ended, 
um, you came back later and you were in a Christmas story, the musical. How did that happen? And uh, and that's once again, that's something where, you know, it's hitting a whole generation because everybody knows that movie. Yeah. Uh, Vince Vaughn, the actor, came to Lombardi. And he and Peter Billingsley, who is the original little boy in the movie Christmas Story, they're uh, partners in a production company. And they asked, they produced Sullivan and Son. And they asked me to be part of that. And while we we did one season of that, Peter said, we're doing a musical of uh, A Christmas Story. You want to be in it? And I said, I can't sing a note. He goes, no, you're Gene Shepard. You're the narrator. You don't have to sing. So uh, I think the fun, so that's how I got it. But the funniest thing was when my agent told Wendy Malick, who's my dearest friend, that uh, I got a Broadway musical, and she knows I can't sing. And she texted me a message saying, I'm sitting on my porch and a pig just flew by. And I'm looking at it and go, what? And then my agent called and said, I never thought I'd get to say this. You have a Broadway musical. And I said, they really hired me for that? They go, yeah, they want you. So... Uh, that's how it came back. And then it was so successful that we brought it back the next year. Now, what do you do when you're a narrator on a, do you just sit off stage or do they have you on stage telling the story? How does a narrator work oh. in? Oh, no, I, I start the show on stage and I go in and out through the scene. The very first rehearsal, John Rando, the director, great director, Tony Award winner, he said, Dan, you got to come out on an eight count. And I said, count slower. I know nothing about musical, but he was very gracious to me. Now, did it also play at Madison Square Garden? The second year. That that was a little too big. I liked it in the theaters, but in the garden it was too much like a circus show. But it worked, and they sold out 5,000 seats almost every performance. That must be hard, though, as you said, performing in something like the garden, because it's got so much open air you know they always say things rise you know your dialogue rises laughs right. rise well i mean how did you adjust to that was it very uh a, a quick ju- adjust or or what what was the process well yeah you, you you know you adapt to the space the hardest thing for me in madison square garden believe it or not is my character had a spotlight on and i i thought being in a bigger space the spotlight would even be further back and it wasn't it was right on top of me so I could react to the audience's sound but I couldn't really see you know being a narrator sometimes if a little girl giggled I'd literally go you thought that was funny right and which you know the audience loved and uh, but I couldn't do that in Madison Square Garden because I was always blinded you know now you also off Broadway you played Jimmy Hoffa what was that like to play a Jimmy Hoffa type oh it was a good play about Bobby Kennedy uh Brian Lee Franklin wrote it, and uh, I really enjoyed it. And one night, uh, uh, Mr. Hoffa's son came to the show, and I said, "Uh uh-oh, I'm going to be in trouble. But he came back and said, my father would have appreciated the way you played him. He worked hard for his his employer, employees. He worked hard for the Teamsters, you know. And that's how Hoffa came off in this play. Yeah, he was associated with gangsters, but he did what he did to keep his men working. 
you know. So it wasn't a gloss over a popper at all. Now, after you left up, I'm going to go back to your TV acting. After you left the Wonder Years, you, what kind of roles were you going out for then? You have you worked constantly, but were you getting were you go, going towards sitcoms or like I see like you're on Amazing Grace and different shows like that? What was it like for you to be after being on a series that you know you, it, you very get a tight knit family and you get used you know you get used to everybody? What was it like going out for new roles and were you did you have to audition in the beginning or were you just getting offers? Oh, I still have to audition now, you know. So, but I don't mind. You know, like Charlie Daring said, you never audition to get a job. You audition because you got five minutes to act today. Hell with them if they don't want you. Act. You know, just act. So, I, I mean, when I do guest spots, I'm usually offered it. But if I had a, another series, I'm sure I would have to audition and go to the network and all that other stuff. You know? And yeah. I never get movies. Now, with the movies, how was it acting in movies? I know you're on Independence Day and different uh, movies. What was it like, the difference between... You're covering three different and now four because you're covering, you know, you've done sitcom, you've done stage, you've done TV, you've done movie. Right. What, what was the difference in the movie and then back then? Because, once again, Independence Day was 20 years ago. What was the like, difference? Like you said, now TV is a lot different. Is movies the same where it hurts these younger actors? Well, yeah, movies is too much editing. You know, actually, the best uh, product is coming out on cable right now. That's why even the big stars, you know, like Woody Harrelson and McConaughey did True Detective. And, you know, uh, these people are, with the better material, are actually going to cable. But uh, movies, uh, you know, it's a very simple rule. The more money you have, the easier it is to do. You do a big movie like, you know, Independence Day. You have all the time in the world. You got money, people, you know. You do a little play off-Broadway where literally you got to go in and clean the bathroom before the performance. It's hard. And doing eight shows a week is hard. So the more money you have, the easier the work itself is. But the more money you have, the more people are sticking their fingers into the creative process, and that's what makes it hard. Now, with your career, when did you start getting into the live sitcom? Was Costello the first one you did that was a live on camera uh, in front of the audience sitcom? I, I believe that was the first one I did as a regular, but I had done a lot of guest spots, uh, like. I did two of them, thank God. That's where I met Neil Marlin and Carol Black. Um, so I always had done guests ahead of the class, you know, shows like that. And, um, of course, Wonder Years was not a live sitcom. We were single camera. Right. Now, now, what was it? What was your adjustment period? Because you had done a background in theater. It was for easy to, to adjust in front of the live audience for the sitcom because... You know, you, you really, you can't step on the laugh, and you want to go with the laugh, but sometimes right. you, you have to get it compacted into a certain time. Well, you learn real quick that they're going to edit it. So even if you will, oh, while you're performing, you allow the laugh to breathe, but in editing, they cut out the air. So again, it's you really have no control over a lot of your performance. Matter of fact, Bob Rush on the Wonder Years, he sent me a tape when the show was over. There were four scenes 
that I shot with Fred that he loved. He wrote three of them, and they never made the air. And he said, I want you to have this. It was a gift to you. He was the real star of the show. Even Fred will tell you that. Bob Rush. Uh, Neil Mullins and Carol Black left after 18 shows, and Bob Rush was the uh, showrunner for the next, you know, 112. And uh, he was uh, he was quite a writer, you know. But a lot of times, your best work doesn't, you know, gets left on the floor. They just don't have time. Now, what were some of the shows that you were on as a guest that you really enjoyed the being a guest star? Because you come in, it's, you know, I've heard, you know, there's different shows where they're just amazing to be on. What were some of your, your shows that you really enjoyed? Because you've been on so many uh, TV shows. Well, I mean, uh, I love Tyne Daly and Sharon Glitz. Tyne really helped me. Uh, and that was one of my first jobs out here. She was, what a pro. I always talk about her when I do my little lecture at colleges. And, of course, I remember the Rockford Files. When I got out here, that had ended. But shortly afterwards, they did three Rockford File 90-minute ones. I was the, uh, the head cop. And I, oh, I had my scenes with uh, James Garner, believe me. There's nobody nicer than James Garner. He was just, what a great guy. And uh, matter of fact, I did an episode of Blue Bloods, and that's all Tom Selleck and I talked about was uh, what a pleasure it was working with Jimmy Garner. You know? And, of course, I've worked with you know my good friends like Joe Montana. And when you got, when the head actor is a real pro, it makes life very easy on the set. You know, so you, you're welcomed. Uh, if young people don't know who you are, they're the ones that go, no, that's the guy from the Wonder Years. He was one of the best shows. You know, and you, and you, you, and the longer I go in the business, the easier it is to be a guest star on a show. You know? Now, is there, has there ever been, and we won't mention a show or anything, but has there ever been a time where you've gone on to a set and the other actors just aren't prepared because you're such a professional and you've done stage it must it must get a little irritating. Yeah. And Steve, I grab those young actors aside and I say, let's run the lines and turn that damn cell phone off. Has, how has... Did I lose you? No, I got you. So, so you, 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 t- you pull them over and you say, you know, hey, you got to get on your game. Yeah. And, but usually, the, like the last show I did, Night Shift, my good friend Timmy Busfield was directing. Mark Consuelos, who I just worked with on Pitch, one of the nicest guys, you'd be a good actor. Scott Wolf, the cinematographer, was uh, Arthur Alberts, who was the cinematographer on, uh, on the Wonder Years. So it was an old home week. But I worked with a young actor there who didn't know his lines. And Timmy Busfield said, Dan, go over. Tell him. So I went over to the guy and I said, Timmy, give me 15 minutes. And I said, you are going to run lines. And they listen because I'm old and they know I'll b- blow up at them right. if they don't, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, we, you know, like Charlie Darren, I don't want to be one of those actors that, oh, I don't need to learn my lines. I still like to give it everything you got on every performance you have. So you talked earlier about the uh, teaching the kids 
and going to schools and speaking. How did you get into that, and, and what are some of the schools you go to, and, and what do you talk to these people about? Well, I, uh, I basically talk to them about acting, but I, I'm not, I don't try to teach them how to act. I mean, I, I'm not a method actor. I don't do that. What I usually do is I'll show three minutes of Argo or a minute of Argo and go cut, 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 until they understand what a cut is. And then I'll show them Cary Grant and Rosalind Russell and His Girl Friday, five minutes and 40 seconds without a cut, the two of them chasing each other around a desk. And uh, I'll say to them, yell out when you see a cut, and there's no cut. And then I tell them, now, I don't know if you like that or not, but I know those two people can act. And then I tell him about having breakfast with Cary Grant, what he told me about working with Rosalind Russell, you know, and how he couldn't keep a straight face every time he looked at the great old character actor Billy Gilbert, you know. So that's really what my lecture is about. How did you meet Cary Grant? There was an old agent named Hal Getsky. He started APA, and he knew I uh, always wanted to meet Jimmy Stewart. And on Sunday mornings, I would pick up Hal and I would take him to breakfast with all the New York actors and he would tell us great stories. He was Gary Cooper's agent during High Noon. He was the one who wrote the contract for him. And one Sunday morning, Hal was putzing around and I said, Hal, come on, the guys are waiting and a doorbell rang and he said, get that, will you, Dan? And I opened it and there was Cary Grant in a running suit with a bag of bagels. And my mouth dropped. And Hal walked by and said, Hi, Carrie. This is the guy who wants to meet Jimmy Stewart. So my first words to Carrie Grant was, He was pretty good, too. And Carrie Grant said, I know, I worked for him. <laughs> and we sat at a little kitchen table for an hour and a half. Oh, more than that. It was more like two and a half hours. And uh, we just had a great talk. And I, I was always that way. When we won the uh, Emmy for the Wonder Years, I literally stole the Emmy from uh, Jeff Silver, our producer. And I went down to La Quinta Golf Course, and I knocked on Frank Capra's door with the Emmy and said, we won the Emmy last night. Can I talk to you? He laughed for 10 minutes. We sat, we talked. He introduced me to Jimmy Stewart. I got involved with the National Veterans Foundation, which I'm still involved with, and I got pictures of me and Jimmy Stewart and Robert Mitchum and Cesar Romero. He was the best storyteller of all of them. And um, I've always wanted the people that are gone that I'll never have a chance to work with, the ones that are still around, I'd love to talk to them about working in the Hollywood system and what it was for actors and why don't we do the long takes anymore? How come character actors don't do the little bits that they were known for back in those days? You know, like Billy Gilbert sneeze, things like that. You know, I've always enjoyed that. Charlie Durning, he always said, every day you don't work, you should go to a gym, you should read aloud for at least a half hour, and you should watch an old movie. And every day I don't work, I do that. What are some of your favorite? What are some of your favorite old uh, movies? 
Well, I won't audition for a comedy without watching uh, His Girl Friday because your pace is stronger. And I won't audition for a bad guy without watching the original Cape Fear with Robert Mitchum. So there's a difference between playing me like Robert De Niro did in the remake. There's a difference between that and being me. And that's what Mitchum was. They're two different style performances. Now, what are some so, TV roles you've been in that you've been mean? Oh, when I first came out here, there were a couple of gangsters and thugs. I played an Irish terrorist once. Um, but, you know, more on stage. I did some mean ones, especially with the... I was part of uh, Betco. We were all Vietnam vets, and uh, sometimes I was the mean colonel or the mean... Now, you know, you, you've been you've been in all these different roles, but Sullivan and Son, how did that come along? And how is it to work with, one, Brian Doyle Murray, who's part of the, you know, comedy oh, comedy uh, royalty. Well, and, and then you were working with a bunch of stand-ups, which I know stand-ups, you know, right. they, stand-ups are not in a bad way, but towards each other, they're competitive. But I think towards you, because you have such a good career, they wouldn't be. What was that like, and, and were you excited? Because I went to see the taping of that, and you guys, you did it like a play, pretty much. I saw the rehearsal one. You did it like through yeah. one through. Was that great for you? Yeah. Because you were, from that background of doing stage, that it was basically, they, they were letting you just go for one take. Right. Well, Brian and I, we would we were like the two critics in The Muppets. You know, he'd be sitting at the bar, and I'd be leaning over, and we'd be judging. I tell you, I gotta be honest with you, Steve. Doing that show, I would back up to the bank to get my check. I never laughed so much in my life. That was the easiest job I ever had, and I never had more fun. That was just fun. And I remember Brian, the third season, he had a scene with Steve, and after he did the scene, he walked back over, took his seat at the bar, and he looked at me and he went, Last year, I would have stole that scene from him. I said, I know the kids are getting good, we better start working. <laughs> so, he is a great guy. Brian Doyle Murray is just—we uh, still play golf. Him and I and Ron Perlman. When he, he moved to Kansas, but when he comes out here to LA, sometimes he'll call and we'll get together and play golf with Perlman. He knows he's always got my guest room if he needs it. He's a great guy. Now the thing—I mean, I talked. Rob Long was on the show, who co-created it with Steve, and uh, one of the best writers in the business. What and they, a very very hard worker. Well, we talked about it. That was a show that it was getting good ratings. What happened with that? And it once, like, as you said, when I went to see the taping, it just looked like you guys were having fun. And you can always tell because it was just loose. And I guess because of the crew was great. And I guess Peter Billingsley also, he was one of the producers, I believe. Oh, yes, yes. And uh, three-year pickup. Uh, even Peter Roth at Warner Brothers thought so. Michael Wright from TBS told us we would. Then Michael Wright got a new job. They brought in this guy, Riley, and he didn't even hold a meeting. He canceled everything. And since then, TBS and, and TNT have not had a hit. So that was, uh, that's one of the best. You know, that's like the Wonder Years. You know, when we, the Wonder Years was on, we were 27 out of 166 shows, and we were canceled. Because of one man, Ronald Perlman, the guy who owned Revlon. Why was so why, why was why, why were you canceled? 
Well, he was one of those guys who bought up companies and piecemealed them, sold them off. And he uh, he bought uh, New World Productions, and he sold everything off but the Wonder Years, and then he tried to rob ABC. And Bob Iger, who just had left, told me that even if he stayed, he didn't think he could deal with that man. And he had already sold syndication to Ted Turner, and he actually wrote the quote, the amount of profit did not warrant another season. It's, so things like that happen in Hollywood all the time. But it's a shame that Sullivan and Son couldn't have got a couple more seasons. Because it was just funny. I mean, that's the thing. A lot of sitcoms, you know. Yeah, it was silly, but it was funny. And we had a good time, and we had a solid audience that... When we moved the night, the third season, we had two shows that dipped, and then they immediately came back. So the audience followed us. Now, as an actor, because people DVR a lot of shows now, do you think that helps shows keep usually keep a longer life because people can watch it at any time? I, I you know, I don't know enough about that. All I know is when the Wonder Years in our second year, we were the number one show. We had one episode that had 33 million viewers, and we were upset because that was the lowest we had that year. So if you want to advertise on the Wonder Years, we can guarantee you 33 million viewers. Now, I don't know what they can guarantee the sponsors. Now you, so you're also- They go by recordings, and a week last year I did a show pitch. We didn't do well when we were on. We did okay. We got critical reviews, but we were like the number one recorded show. But it didn't make any difference. We got canceled anyway. And we and that show was written by the best writer in television now, Dan Fogelman, who writes This Is Us. I just did a guest spot for Dan. Now, Great guy. What was a pitch like? Because I'm a big baseball fan. I know I know you probably did you shoot in stadiums and I know it was it was about a, a young African American girl who was a pitcher in the MLB, right. but it was the same time it seemed like when the girl in the Little League World Series was, you know, pitching. So I thought it would be a really good lead into that because, you know, kids would watch it. What was it like working on that show? I mean, did you did you get to be in the well, stadium? Oh, yeah. We, we, were, we weren't the San Diego Chicken Hawks. We were the San Diego Padres. We shot in the Padres Stadium. We shot in Dodger Stadium. We even took a trip up to San Francisco. Um, baseball, uh, Major League Baseball was behind us 100%. It was an expensive show, yes. But, and Kylie, our lead girl, what a fine. I mean, I'm trying to get her to do the Lena Horn story. She's gorgeous and she sings and, you know. Anyway, uh, that was another one of those where you throw your hands up in the air and you say, Hollywood, like Charlie Durning said, you do a job. The only thing you say is next. Right. Now, now you're going to have to talk to the school today. What do you, do you think you have an impact and do you touch these kids? Do they listen to you? Do they enjoy it? And I mean, and do you think a lot of them really, it changes how they look at acting? Because acting, people forget acting is a craft. I mean, it's like anything. Stand-up comedy is a craft. You just don't become a right. Comic after three years ago, I'm a headliner. No, it takes forever. An actor, you know, you guys are always going back to the drawing board. You're always working hard. You're always trying to learn your craft. How do you how do you instill that? You don't teach, but how do you instill to the young people? Because there's such a short attention span now, too. How do you instill to them that? Well, I well, first of all, 
First of all, I disagree with the short attention span. Uh, the same people will tell you the reason why all the cuts are there is because the young kids doesn't have any attention span. They're the same people who are trying to get you to binge watch 12 hours at a time. This only happened about 15 years ago when we know when the studios and the networks were no longer the parent company. When we worked for GE, Westinghouse, those corporates, and they would come in and they did not. They felt they had to say something, so they said, "How about a close up on that line? How about a close up on that line?" So that's where all this editing came from. It doesn't have anything to do with it. these kids. They could sit at a computer for 10 hours and not move. They can be very more focused than my generation was. I always had ants in the pants. You know? <laughs> but they, uh, and, and, and it, so I, I really don't buy that theory at all. But when I'm with the young kids and I show them a Preston Sturgis movie like Hail the Conquering Hero, and I talk about working with Eddie Brackett, and it goes seven, eight minutes without a cut, and they're laughing. And I say, notice there are no cuts. I say, if you look at that and you go, God, I can never do that, please don't work with me. If you watch that and you say, wow, I'd like to try that, I can't wait to get on stage with you. Now, so that's how you reach it. Now, what else, what, you're going to shoot a movie. Uh, what movie are you shooting? I'm shooting a little independent movie called The Eagle and the Albatross. I'm going to play an 82-year-old Jewish doctor who's going blind, but he happens to be a great golfer, and he teaches a 13-year-old Chinese girl how to golf before he dies. So it's actually a very nice script, and when they called me, I said, oh, do you want me to, why are you calling? You want me to call Ron Perlman or Hal Linden, you know, one of my good friends? And they said, no, we want you. And I immediately said, oh, you have no money. Okay, I'm in. <laughs> and uh, now what else is coming up? And you, are you, are you, do you have any stage plans coming up? Because you want to get back on? Because you said you missed last year because of your hip? Right. Well, I was supposed to do a play this fall. But uh, next weekend, I'm going to be doing Love Letters in Durango, Colorado with my pal Wendy Malik. And then she's coming back here to do a play at the Kirk Douglas Theater called The Big Night. So any of your listeners are in L.A., catch that. She's wonderful on stage. And then um, I'm, I have a contract with This Is Us. I'm going to be doing a few more episodes. But in uh, the spring, I think the end of February, beginning of March, I'm going to be doing a play called The Stone Witch written by uh, Shem Bitterman and directed by uh, Steve Zuckerman. Now, so and I hope to be doing that in New York where, where they're talking about 59 East 59th Street, the big spaces. Do you love getting back to New York to do the stage? I mean, do you do, do you ever do stage in L.A. much or is it always in New York? I, most of the time it's in New York. The few things I've done in L.A. it's because it's moved back here. You know, um, Joe Montaigne uh, had me do Lake Boat when he directed it. That was a trip. I had to play a small part and understudy everyone else except the one young guy, knowing that everybody was going to miss performances because of contracts on TV. So I got to play like 10 roles, you know. So that was fun. Plus, working with always working with Joe Montaigne, it's, uh, it's an honor to be with Joe. 
And, so, uh, and with this, I do plays here. You know, I did a reading series here, Steve. But when I got the Wonder Years, Charlie Durning made me produce a couple of plays, and one of them was a Bronze Tale, and we sold it to De Niro. And then Charlie said, "All right, what are we going to do with the money?" And we started a reading series where every Monday night we read a new play to help writers get literary agents, and it caught on mainly because of Charlie and Joe Montini. We got the biggest names in the business. I mean, you know, Charlton Heston called saying, when are you going to put me in one of your readings? I was like, geez, Mr. Heston, you know, Peter Falk, what a great guy. You know, I, matter of fact, I wrote a play that finally made it to New York. It was written for Charlie Durning, Dom DeLuise, Jack Klugman, and Peter Falk, and the four of them did two readings of it. So that's the kind of the caliber we had for reading. Is, is there any, and it was great. Is there anyone that you wish you had met? Because you've met so many big stars. Is there anyone that you really wish you had met that you could have? I'm not saying, you know, go back in time. But anyone that you wish you had met that you may have just missed out on or you really would have just wanted to sit there and talk to them? I, well, I finally got to meet Kirk Douglas only about two years ago. And that was a pleasure. And, of course, we talked about Bert Lancaster, who is here and worked with some of my friends you know, like in Field of Dreams. And I really would have liked to have met him. And, um, you know, I, I met Jane Fonda, and, of course, we talked about her dad, and I would have liked to have... I met him once, actually, but it was so brief. It really wasn't time to sit down and talk. Of course, I heard a lot about him from Jack Klugman, who did the tour of uh, Mr. Roberts with him. So, uh, you know, that's a lot. I would have loved to have met... You know, Spencer Tracy, I always can, you know, it's hard to pick your favorite. Uh, I got to walk through an art exhibit of Anthony Quinn's art in Toronto with Anthony Quinn. Of course, we didn't talk much about acting. We talked about art, but it was so enjoyable. He was such a, he was such a good storyteller. That's awesome. Well, you know what, Dan, I want to take, I want to thank you for taking your time to come on the show. It's funny. I know, uh. Ray, your friend Ray Abruzzo has been on the show before, and uh, oh, Ray's the best. He was in the play that we did in New York. He played both Peter Falk's part and Jack Klugman's part. Well, in one act, he was Peter Falk. Next act, he was Jack Klugman. See, that's awesome. Well, I just I, I know because he had said this. I interviewed him a few years back, and he said you guys were very good friends. And uh, it's always good because you oh, know. Because you guys are always, you know, actors that I've watched. I'm 52, and it's something that I've watched you guys, and I'm very big into character actors. So I want to thank you for taking the time right. when you're driving. And, uh, yeah, now, do you Twitter at all, or are you just on Facebook? Uh, well, do- I, have, I have a Facebook page. It's actually very political, like Ray's. But, um, yeah, I'm on Facebook. People can go on there and catch me, Steve, anytime. You got my number whenever you want. Give me a call. Maybe I can set up some other character actors for you. I love it, Dan. Well, I want to thank you for coming on. Uh, have a good time teaching, or not teaching, instructing, and telling them about the biz. So people, please, IMDB, IMDB Dan Loria, and go watch his stuff, because you're going to see a great actor, and that's what I'm saying. So I want to thank you, Dan. I'm Steve Cooper for Walk My Mind. You guys have a wonderful day.